Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. The weekend is over. It's Political Rewind time on a Monday afternoon. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for the show today. Uh, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here as he is on Mondays and Fridays. You read him in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Boy, we got a lot to talk about today, Galloway. Yeah, and, and we're down to the last week of the legislature. Well, and that's part of what we have a lot to talk yeah. about, and we will do just that. Um, Amy Steigerwald is back with us. She is a professor, I always say, of political science. Which is correct. Well, I go to the website and it says public policy. It does? I think it does. But well, it says you teach public policy. Oh, maybe that's it. Oh. I think. Anyhow. It should not. Amy yeah, Steigerwald is a professor of political science at Georgia State University. And, uh, she, you, you know, how long have you been coming on this show now? I think you had me first on in October, yeah. which I greatly appreciate. Yeah, and you've been a great addition to Thank our you. panels. Thanks it's for fun. being back. Sitting next to you, and if you're watching on Facebook Live, you can see this, Heath Garrett. A political consultant, Republican political consultant. He was here last week when uh, Johnny Isaacson came in. Uh, you and Johnny Isaacson have worked together for a very long time. And uh, we got to talk with Johnny about his uh, disappointment in the president's behavior toward John McCain on the show. I thought it was great that we had a Georgia senator who helped make news nationally and internationally yeah. last week and I think led the way to... Man, he was Altering all over the conversation. his uh, his. He was all over every newscast. Uh, his sitting in the studio making those comments about how disappointed he was. Um, so, thank you for coming in again today, Heath. Great to be here. Who is always, mostly always, with us on Mondays. Buddy Darden is back with this former Democratic congressman from Cobb County and uh, a perennial favorite for political rewind listeners. Well, thank you. I heard Senator Isaacson take President Trump to the woodshed coming back from Gwinnett County last week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have some breaking. You know, when you're on a winning streak, Galloway, you're really on a winning streak. And the president appears to be on a winning streak right now. We're going to talk in a minute about the fact that uh, clearly we know that the Mueller investigation indicated at least that he was not guilty of collusion, nor was anyone from his campaign with the Russians. We're going to talk more in depth about that in a minute. Clearly, that was good news for the president. But a little while ago, and I'm still unpacking the details of this, a uh, an indictment, a federal indictment against Michael Avenatti, who tormented Trump with the Stormy Daniels case for a very long time. He's been indicted for trying to extort, according to the indictment, $22 million from Nike by threatening to expose them to negative publicity. The very brief facts of the story are that Avenatti and a former AAU basketball coach went to Nike and said, we have evidence and information that your employees have been funneling money to college basketball players and we're going to reveal that unless you pay us twenty-two point three, I think, million dollars, so that we can keep it quiet. Is, it, is that out of the Southern <laughs> District of New York? Uh, it's. Uh, I, uh, it is the Southern District of New York. Well, exactly. see, you've got you've got so, you've got some balance there now. Yeah, <laughs> Amy, he's likely to run into uh, President Trump uh, somewhere in the Southern District of New York as they look at him too in the holding <laughs> cell. <laughs> well, let's not go that far. All right. Anyhow, I wanted to give you that news because it is really interesting. Interesting. All right. So, uh, Jim, we all know that at four o'clock yesterday afternoon, the um, Justice Department, uh, William Barr, released his four page summary letter of what the Mueller report showed. And, and there's some controversy surrounding how he wrote that letter. But the starting point is that Mueller clearly has exonerated the president and his campaign in terms of any collusion with Russia. Yeah, they split the difference on uh, on uh, obstruction, obstruction of justice. Uh, so there's no there's no finding there. I think what this I think the, broadly speaking, what you can, can say is this does take impeachment 
off the House U.S. House agenda, the the Democrats in the House. It it uh, it actually kind of more 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 conforms more closely uh, with what Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi was trying to go for. But I think it also the the summary itself, Bill. I think it 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 it's going to it's this is an appetizer, and I think it's going to make us more hungry for the real thing. So, um, buddy, I want to read just a couple of lines from the letter because we've all been hearing the reports, but I'm not sure that everybody's had a chance to read the letter. Again, collusion, no evidence of collusion. Uh, But the second section of the report that Mueller did and which Barr reports on is obstruction. And here's what Barr says in his letter about Mueller. After making a thorough factual investigation into these matters, meaning obstruction, the special counsel considered whether to evaluate the conduct under department standards governing prosecution but ultimately determined not to make a traditional prosecutorial judgment. The special counsel, therefore, did not draw a conclusion one way or the other as to whether the examined conduct constituted obstruction. Now, a paragraph later, and I won't read this verbatim, uh, Barr says the special counsel left it up to the Justice Department, to the attorney general, to make a decision after seeing f- information established on both sides of the question, left it up to Barr to establish whether or not anyone was, uh, uh, you know, exposed, had, had exposure in terms of obstruction of justice. And Barr decided, nope. All I can say is it didn't take him very long to make that decision in less than 48 hours uh, for a decision that Mueller couldn't seem to make uh, over a three-year period. But in any event, we need to let this thing unfold, see where it goes, look at the whole report, and I think we'll have, have a better idea. Right just, now, uh, just, uh, everybody's I, just, like Jim over there, just grabbing air because yeah, we don't know. If, uh, if I could just uh, interrupt, uh, th- there are reports out this morning that actually – that uh, that Barr had the had the uh, the conclusion from Mueller for three weeks for the last three weeks to to study it. That is interesting because uh, the fact that he saw fit to tip him off and give him a heads up like that that's that's in and of itself a little suspect too. But he's entitled to do that. But let's just wait and see where this thing goes. I'll be interested because I believe Republicans as well as Democrats want to see the whole report. Amy, you're you're the lawyer in the bunch here. Um, Well, I think what is difficult about all of this is that Mueller was tasked with writing a report about whether or not there was criminal liability. And the standard for bringing criminal charges is not the same as saying there's not evidence or that there is not uh, even provable facts that would point in the direction of something. Instead, it's whether or not someone, in fact, could be convicted of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And prosecutors generally do not want to bring charges unless they're really darn sure they're going to be able to prove without, right, beyond a reasonable doubt. And so what's concern- what's, what is difficult to read in this and determine is what exactly we actually learn, right? Again, we don't have the report, and whether or not we're going to receive the report, it is sort of important to note that this is not going to be like the Ken Starr report. The the, that uh, Ken Starr was under a different set of congressional statutes that were, in fact, revoked. We're now under a set of DOJ regulations, and there will be no sort of formal published report. There is what the attorney general determines can be released publicly, and nothing has to be released publicly. So that's sort of important to note. The other thing I think that's important to note is, again, what's the standard here? Mueller was tasked with determining, can somebody, in fact, be convicted? Right? Can they be charged and then convicted? And what we have is that it's difficult to tell if there was evidence right, of things going on, but what they determined is there's not enough to charge. With the obstruction question, what um, a number of uh, sort of people in the, the legal world are really saying is that what it was left was is that Mueller said, look, there's sort of arguments on both sides— And I'm going to refuse to come to a conclusion, perhaps because really what this is, is a political decision and not a legal Mm. decision. And so they're two distinct things. So I would actually argue that what he was doing was saying, I'm leaving the determination to Congress. So, Heath, that takes us to where we stand. Right. You know, this is now political. It is political now. And the reason I thought we should start with it, people who love politics have been hearing this ever since yesterday afternoon. I don't want to try to recreate what they've heard on CNN, Fox, whatever, MSNBC. But now they're going to be Georgians. 
who come into play in in this story. Uh, so, and one of them is Doug Collins, who is the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, he w- was all over the networks yesterday. Uh, the right. chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, uh, criticized Barr, uh, saying, "How could he come to the conclusion that there's not evidence to prove that Trump committed obstruction after only having a couple days to review the report?" Well, we've seen new information on that since then. But I want to give you a chance to talk about all this. But but before we do that, let's listen to uh, what Doug Collins said yesterday uh, in talking to um, Fox News about all this. Uh, if my chairman wants to call the attorney general, I'm sure the attorney general would come to the Hill. That's part of what oversight on the Judiciary Committee is. The problem I have with my chairman right now is on several occasions today, it seems to be, he seems to be impugning the integrity of the attorney general and implying that the attorney general was not acting fairly in his own job. That is an, an issue that has been uh, the, probably the more concerning part of today, a day should, which should be good news for Americans, good news to know that there was no collusion, good news to know that there was no obstruction, and that their president, who has been working hard for them, is continuing to do that. That's the concerning part, but that's the good part also for America today. Heath? Yeah, no, I mean, look, we've gone from the, the scenario where particularly my left-leaning Democratic friends were all about Mueller's integrity and the honesty and how this is the greatest guy to ever do this to now, okay, well, we don't trust everything that's come out. We've got to wait for 40,000 more pages. We had we had 19 lawyers. We've spent $45 million for two years there were what, Jim, 2,800 subpoenas that have been issued. There are 500 search warrants. I mean, the House Judiciary Committee is not going to be able to do a better job of investigating this, except from a political angle, than what the DOJ and the FBI have done. And the ultimate reason for this investigation was whether or not there was collusion with Russia. That has been clearly determined that that, that did not occur now. And so what we do in Washington, and this has happened in other states too, and it's happened with Democrats and Republicans, is we try to get somebody on the technicality of obstruction, even though the underlying uh, crime did not occur. And I think that that's where we've now left the any faint of or hint of true neutrality and legality and gone to the purely political side. And that's what the House is. It's the people's house. They're welcome to make it political. But we're no longer about what's uh, out there. And I think we got a real problem in politics now trying to criminalize everything when somebody's trying to defend themselves so, in these well, types but of if, scenarios. If, if, I, if I could, Bill, on, on this, just, uh, just pushing back just a little bit on this, uh, I don't think what, what uh, the, the House Judiciary Committee is talking about is, is cre- recreating a new investigation. <laughs> They want to see what was investigated, and they want to see the paperwork, and that's what that's what this is now. This this is this has gone from from a, a possible impeachment proceeding to a fight over over uh, over paperwork, over over the, the the backgrounding documents, and that's you know that's that's a, that's a that's a development in Trump's favor, because right. it because he is largely in control of that paperwork now, and called for some transparency himself. But yeah, I right. do want to point out that he's he suggested that maybe Democrats are now looking differently on Robert Mueller. But in fact, what they're really looking at is William Barr's interpretation in a four-page letter of what Robert Mueller said. They have not, to the best of my knowledge, started being critical of Mueller at this point. Well, as a Democrat, first of all, I'm very complimentary of the uh, investigation that he did. And I feel like that he did everything that could be done. And I commend him on what he's done. So I'm not one of those Democrats who has soured on Mueller at all. I think uh, he conducted himself in a way, in an exemplary way. And uh, he did his job. And that's up for everybody to do theirs. And I want to agree with something that Jim said a while ago. And that I, for one, am glad impeachment at least for the time being, is off the table because I think it's a big loser for the, for the Democrats. And uh, we need to concentrate on uh, running the Congress, certainly doing the investigation, looking into uh, the report properly. But I'm glad this might tone down the left a little bit of our party because uh, they'll begin to get a little out of hand. And I would agree politically that's a big winner for the Democrats, right? I, I do think that if they had gone down the impeachment uh, category, it was going to be more helpful to us as Republicans. And so we can find some bipartisanship on that. Amy, I want to get you in, but I do want to correct. I realize that I said something a little bit. I, I went a little too far with it. There are Democrats who are questioning whether Mueller shirked his duty in not conclu- making a conclusion about whether there was criminal behavior in terms of the obstruction. So I want to give you that back, uh, Heath. Amy, jump in here. 
Uh, well, I do think that, so this is where I, I, I get Brighton because I'm sort of like the wonky, you know, the, the wonky one who doesn't really care about the political sides, but it's more about what's going on. That I think that what is very difficult here, again, is that much of what Mueller is tasked with was determining did something reach the, reach the level of criminal liability. Criminal liability doesn't mean that, or a non-finding of criminal liability doesn't mean that there's not lots of actions, right, that might have occurred that are highly problematic, right? It doesn't mean that there's not sort of underlying things there. And I also think that his determination was in part because there is, in fact, a lot of very complicated sort of underlying uh, constitutional and statutory questions about what the president can be held liable for, especially on the obstruction of justice issue. There, in fact, is a real question of whether or not a president if he's engaging in Article 3 or Article 2 uh, actions can ever, in fact, be engaging in obstruction of justice. Uh, William Barr is, in fact, one of the people that's written a memo about that coming down on a particular side. And that's where some of the confusion comes in. And so I think what's really actually difficult about this is we want to have a political debate about findings that aren't in and of themselves political. And in the one place where I think the problem is the determination, there was no way to, in fact, come to a legal conclusion. There was only a political conclusion. That's the one where Mueller said, I'm not touching it. I'm not it. getting in there. All right. Let me bring this back to Georgia again uh, for a couple reasons. First of all, uh, Stacey Abrams weighed in on this uh, this morning. She's out in Los Angeles on her uh, book tour. And uh, here was her quote. Uh, well, not her quote. Here's a summary of what she said, and then I'll get to a quote. She said that uh, Attorney General William Barr's summary was, and this is a quote, like having your brother summarize your report card. <laughs> quote, we should, we should be deeply suspicious, especially since he had 12 tardies and at least three times ditching class. <laughs> and she goes on and says that uh, she calls Barr an avowed partisan who in part auditioned for the job of attorney general by disparaging the right of the uh, uh, attorney general to uh, 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 disparaging the fact that Barr said that this investigation should never have gone forward in the first place long before he or not long before, but before he was nominated to be attorney general. So we've now got Abrams weighing in. But, Jim, one of the things that's fascinating about her weighing in here is Stacey Abrams, if not before this, has once and for all claimed her right to have a voice in the national debate and to be a player worthy of attention in the national debate. Right. Yeah. And and, and it's it's going to stay like that until yep. at least, what, mid-April now, yep. uh, until she makes the call on whether uh, whether uh, or she or Joe Biden makes a call on, on whether there's a there's a, an instant Democratic ticket or if she's in the U.S. Senate race or or whatever she decides to do. Buddy, let me say that an instant Democratic ticket, as Bill's, uh, excuse me, as Jim suggests, would be absolute disaster because <laughs> we're talking about November of 2020, and that is 10 eternities in politics. And I think uh, in all deference to uh, Ms. Abrams, that would be a mistake of the highest order for Joe Biden or any other candidate to come in at this point because we never know what's going to un unfold. And we know from uh, being around this table, we don't know what's going to happen from one day to the next. All right. A week, week or one month from the next. All right. All right. Where, where was Ms. Abrams when she made this Los, quote? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. On, on, on a book tour. On a keep book my theme tour. up. On, on a book tour. It's on a book tour. I, I mean, you know, I understand that the Republicans have this where in the world is Stacey uh, game that's, that's going. That's my role. That's my and, role. No, no, I understand that. I'm not, I mean, I think that's fair game. Is this a new um, Carmen San Diego game? Yeah, but okay. she is, but she, so she would say, look, I've got a right to sell my book. She she has said I didn't do very well selling it during the election year. <laughs> but but I get, I get it. I mean, I do think it's fair game for Republicans to uh, wonder when she's coming back to talk to the people. Well, in all seriousness, I do think this, you know, she's weighing in on a national issue. I do think she has a national platform. I said last Wednesday on the radio station, I have a lot of respect. And I do think she has the potential to actually, she's a different version of Beto. I think she's got a national fundraising base and a celebrity status in places that make her, she gets to choose between Georgia and and running uh, for president or vice president. I don't think it's limited to vice president. I think she— This is a crazy era. I noticed Time Magazine. I still subscribe to Time Magazine. I got it this week, and AOC was on the cover. I mean, where is this thing going? Okay, so 
Okay, so we've transitioned from the investigation. That's fine, from Mueller. And now let's spend a couple minutes, as long as we're doing it, Jim, talking about Abrams' future. I heard what Buddy just said a minute ago about it would be silly for her, you used a different word, to be to run as the vice presidential uh, running mate to Joe Biden. But let's propose a different theory here. Uh, presumably, we thought for a long time that Abrams' decision was whether to run for U.S. Senate against David Perdue, which is certainly what uh, the uh, Chuck Schumer and sure. other mm-hmm. national Democrats wanted in, up on the Hill wanted to do, or to wait until 2022 to run against Brian Kemp when he runs for re-election. So let's assume that she really would rather run for governor in 2022, but it's gotta have, she's got to have some way to be current in the political debate. Well, if you become Joe Biden's running mate, one of two things happens. You either become vice president of the United States, and if you don't, you have all that time out there on the campaign trail engaging every day in politics, continuing to have relationships with donors who, if you lose, will then be with you when you run against Kemp in 22. Yes, but if if let's let us let us let's let us assume uh, that Joe Biden doesn't catch fire. Well, and, yes. and you're and you're and you're attached to him. That doesn't help you. Yeah. I think what 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 would, might be smarter is is to is is if she if she if she has no no taste for for the a U.S. Senate race and wants to preserve her her her, her credibility for a, a 2022 uh, uh, run for governor. What you do is you hold yourself as a uh, a surrogate for everyone. And that you wait for the, that that nominee to be selected, and then you do your due diligence as an ambitious Democrat, like so many other people do. All right, Amy, we, here we go. We're you know the media, we're spe- or we are Galloway and I, speculating like crazy about things we know nothing about. Well, that's what we all do because it's fun. <laughs> uh, I think there's two things. I think the other part is, is she also this week announced a new initiative to ensure accurate counting in the census. Yes. Right. Again, another way sort of showing that kind of grassroots um, sort of broad based organizing that is to right And again, to keep her within the national debate. So that's certainly a big deal that's going on, as well as uh, the things that she's working on with voting rights. Um, and I think the other one is, I mean, I would sort of agree. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of downsides for her in joining any campaign at this stage, that she's better to hold off. And the thing about holding off is that it means whoever becomes the eventual nominee, perhaps she is the choice for, for VP. I mean, the other thing is she might also run. Lots of other people have come in, right? I mean, we've got a mayor of a small Midwestern town who has joined in. We've got multiple senators. We have a former congressman, right? Why not, right? Uh, uh, you know, the person who was minority leader. All right. That was a lovely little sidetrack that we went off on, and I appreciate you're all participating in that. But we have so much more to talk about on Political Rewind today. Let's uh, take a break and come back and uh, get to the rest of uh, the news of the day. Now is the perfect time to clean out the garage and get rid of that car you no longer need. You'll face the coming months with a fresh start, and by donating your used car to GPB, you'll even get a tax deduction. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. The Mueller report is complete, but how much of it will the public see? Well, I am concerned with the noises that are coming from the Justice Department, that it may decide not to share information with Congress. That would be a terrible double standard. The House Intel chair says he could subpoena the special counsel if Congress doesn't get to see the underlying evidence. What we know about the report this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Jim Galloway, uh, early Friday evening, the state Senate passed the fetal heartbeat bill. It goes back. It went back to the House because the Senate changed it uh, uh, in various ways. Uh, did the House take it up? Is the House, do you know uh, so where it stands as, So far today? as I know, they, they have not taken it up. They could, because it is an agree-disagree yeah. matter, they could take it up at any, any moment, moment at, the, right. at, the, at the speaker's, uh, at the, when the when the stu- speaker makes the call. Right. What's interesting about that, Heath, is we're not going to go into some kind of problem with a conference committee on this to reconcile differences 
they're gung-ho to get this thing passed. So as Jim says, it's a degree, a degree, disagree, a quick vote, boom, it's over with. I, I do think that if that's the if that's the goal is to get it over with, they definitely have to agree, disagree. What's interesting is we've heard a little bit of discussion over the last 72 hours as to whether or not something that the Senate did causes either their lawyers or internal lawyers or external lawyers to say, hey, wait a second, did y'all do something that that isn't agreeable, disagreeable in that simple sense, and that would that would be a that would be a reason for a delay. Um, I don't understand and or have any knowledge from any of my Republican friends about why it, you know didn't want today. But well, you've got you've got some protests from the Medical Association of Georgia uh, alleging that it it would crimin- criminalize the routine practice uh, of physicians as they treat uh, uh, expectant mothers. Uh, you've got you've got certain people uh, who think that it also might, in, under some circumstances, cr- uh, uh, criminalize women who seek out abortions. Buddy, it's a sad day in Georgia when uh, we pass this kind of legislation, and I'm very very disappointed. Uh, you don't expect any be- anything better from the legislature. They just come in here for the days and go home and do their thing, but uh, the governor's got to be here the whole time, and his. His uh, embracing of this bill is very personally disappointing to me because I think this is just so far out there and unconstitutional, and it's just a matter of time before the federal courts strike it down, in my opinion. Well, I, look, I think we ought, this would be a great topic for if we, we ought to take a whole show one day and go back over. There's the theological questions. There's some things that, were, that, that pro-life folks did with this bill that I think are more intelligent politically and from a policy standpoint. There are things that I think probably hurt their cause. Uh, this is part of a national effort on both sides, right? Things that happened in Virginia and New York and these other things have energized the, on the pro-abortion, pro-choice side, have energized the pro-life side. And so both are sending test cases to this newly, uh, you know, uh, comprised uh, U.S. Supreme Court, and they're trying to do it on the pro-choice side in multiple liberal states. We're now, the Republicans are doing it in multiple conservative states, and they're trying to do it in multiple uh, appellate courts because they don't know what they're going to get. But they're going to give this newly revised and newly uh, personalized uh, Supreme Court an opportunity to update Roe v. Wade, and we don't know what that'll be. As a lawyer and a constitutional scholar, sometimes uh, I don't know how I'd predict that they would come out on some of these different bills either way. Uh, but we're going to see that play out over the next five to six years. And we're going, but but we are going to see it uh, play out much faster in uh, in November 2020. Anyway, that's before we get to the political, which is a whole different analysis. I can agree with legislation like this theologically from a policy standpoint and from a constitutional standpoint. Politically, uh, we as Republicans uh, have to understand this is going to this is going to create issues with independent men and women uh, all in suburbs all over the country. And to, to deny that politically uh, would be naive on the purely political standpoint. It, it plays to the base, but not to the general. To the general. That's right. Um, Amy, there was a photograph that mm-hmm. y- that the political insider mm-hmm. uh, published, yep. uh, and in fact, uh, Robert, if there's a way we can uh, send out a link uh, to that photograph uh, from the insider, Jim, why don't you describe what the photograph is, and then I'd love to hear Amy react to it. Okay, well, basically, it's a it's a photograph of uh, it's it's a it's a uh, a caucus meeting photograph. It was uh, on Friday morning. Uh, they knew that this vote on uh, HB 481 was coming up. They knew Renee Underman, who was going to carry it. It's a photo of Renee Underman in the foreground with 33 white male Republican senators behind her. No. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it is, it is, it, they are the force that got this bill across the finish line. Jim, Jim Webber's Kay Kirkpatrick. She was excused for a funeral on, on right. Friday, and mm-hmm. apparently it was. Jim tells us it was. He's researches a letter. It was a legitimate excuse, but it certainly. I it's it took her off the spot for the time being. But she's going to have to speak to this during a, a right, right. re-election mm-hmm. campaign. Amy, uh, that photograph kind of took my breath away. In the same way that the debate, both in the House and Senate, sort of took my breath away. Um, I don't doubt that there are many women. I know there are many women who are anti-abortion. We we know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that this debate has been carried forward with very few exceptions by white men really is a, a, something that I think will play into the political calculation. 
I think definitely. I mean, we saw Jen Jordan after the Senate committee voted explain all of the votes that came out of that committee as being not just a party line vote, but a gender line vote. And I think it's also a picture that is striking in the sense that it shows how fundamentally the Republican caucus has changed in its demographics, right? The idea, I'll, I'll admit, I thought there were more women senators on the Republican side than there were until sort of seeing that picture and really bringing home that there's two, right? Whereas, right, and similar thing is happening uh, with the House Republican caucus um, that we sort of see that shrinking. We see it happening on a national level to where, right, the elected representatives are becoming much whiter uh, from the Republican Party as well as more male. And it's concerning, right? I mean, I would say that as political scientists, right, it's concerning for the health of the Republican Party going forward that there is not that sort of change and that the demographics are not really reflecting more broadly what the United States looks like, whether it's, it has to do with gender or has to do with uh, race and ethnicity. And I think it's going to be concerning. And I think in Georgia, we see that particularly in the metro Atlanta area, right? A lot of the people that lost their races uh, were the more moderate Republicans that represented. And the ones that are now about to be challenged are, again, there and, you know, people like Ramey Andreman and Kay Kirkpatrick. And so, like, it's concerning that we could end up with a fully male white Republican uh, representatives in the General Assembly. And, I, and I, as a Republican on the panel, I, I want to say, first of all, I, I want to, from a public policy standpoint, I want to disagree with, and I know I'm going to get beat up on this, but you know, your gender does not determine whether or not you have a right to vote on or have thoughts about when life begins or, on the contrary, on on uh, when choice and individual liberty conflict in the Constitution. So I know we're on political rewind, and, and the AJC was making the point about politics, but the idea that just because you're white or just because you're male, you don't get to, to weigh in on this very important constitutional debate, I think, is what's wrong with tribalism and identity politics in America today. That being said, I agree 100% with what the political scientists just said, right? The Republican Party cannot become a party of white males uh, in into the end of the you know 21st century, and we were making good strides, and actually got wiped out in the suburbs of America uh, because of either the popularity or unpopularity of the president of the United States with a lot of the people who had gender and or other racial and ethnic uh, qualities. And so the party's got to rebuild on that because I agree wholeheartedly the Republican Party won't. Uh, be a contending party for power in all but three or four states or anywhere in the nation if we don't create diversity in, in gender and generational uh, uh, differentials. You know, Bill, I was uh, uh, I was kind of digesting the news that Karen Handel had announced uh, her uh, that she was going mm -hmm. to try to uh, retake uh, the 6th District Congressional race. And I was uh, uh, talking with one of uh, Lucy McBath's advisors uh, on the drive down here. And and he reminded me that the very last Lucy McBath uh, television ad, the closer, was about the threat the Republicans pose to a woman's right to choice, which was the first time that ha that had ever. I mean, in 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 I'd say in twenty years in Georgia, that was probably the first time that a TV ad on that topic had been used and worked. Sam makes a very good point, and also agree. Go one step further. It's the first time I've ever seen a anti-gun campaign mm -hmm. take place in the state mm -hmm. of Georgia. Those two things, which used to be totally, totally feared by by Democrats, all of a sudden are coming to the forefront. Well, we've said on this show, it's interesting that Jim uh, reminds us of that commercial because, buddy, we've said on this show on several occasions since the uh, heartbeat bill really began gaining momentum that um, – it, it, it's to those of us who've watched the Georgia legislature for many years, it was somewhat startling to see this bill advance the way it did, because despite the fact that there is certainly uh, a strong sentiment to do as much to shut down abortion as possible over decades, that impulse has been has been repressed because I think um, bigger voices, bigger Boy, yeah, more important voices have said, no, no, we don't need this for this state right now. It's not good for our politics. Well, the trouble with the legislature right now is you've got the inmates in charge of the asylum. You don't have anybody to stand up and really take charge, like Tom Burford used to do. By the way, we used to be out of the legislature by St. Patrick's Day <laughs> in time for him to go to Savannah. But uh, I think there needs to be some hard 
thinking leadership that's not for kind of keep these people in line. And unfortunately, there's no real authority over there anymore. So, all right. Um, so we looked at, thanks to the AJC, we looked at other states that are dealing with the same issue. Kentucky, uh, Governor Bevin signed a bill on March 9th that would make abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected a felony. Missouri, on February 27th, the state house passed a bill that would do the same thing. Mississippi signed a heartbeat bill on March 21st. The state Senate in Ohio approved a heartbeat bill. It hasn't gone through. In Tennessee, a heartbeat bill passed the state house on March 7th. Arkansas has a an, uh, two anti-abortion bills that they're looking at that they've looked at, and at least one of them passed. On the other side of it, uh, New York signed a law that uh, codifies Roe v. Wade into state law. It's to no exception, I mean, abortion simply uh, legal under any circumstances. So there are a few more that we could add to that. But here's something I learned. And I think I learned this. I wish we had a doctor on the panel, although one of you is more than welcome to play one if you'd like. We've been talking about this fetal heartbeat at six weeks. That's been what we've, you know, we've taught. We've accepted that. This weekend, I I started reading some literature that suggested it is not at six weeks an actual heartbeat that's being detected. No, what it technically is, is you're detecting my, my understanding of it, because I'm I, I'm not that type of doctor, uh, that you are detecting the flowing of blood, blood through the embryo. So it's the woman's blood, but it then sort of mirrors the woman's heartbeat. Um, and so it's showing that it's going through there and the blood is flowing through. It's also important. This is where to get really wonky. That six weeks is not six weeks um, it's six weeks gestationally, which is not six weeks from when we count pregnancy. So we actually count pregnancy from the date of the woman's last period, which during that point when she's having her period, she by definition isn't pregnant. So there's a two week period there that we a lot of times add on to pregnancy. So it's actually more around the eight week point that that comes in. But yes, it's it's picking up on the blood flowing through. So, so Jim. What this suggests is that this debate is more emotion than it is science. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would think so. I'd, or, or theology. Yeah, uh, well, more that's so. Right. I'm more, sorry. Well, more that's so. even better. It's theological. But, but, but taking the other side of that argument, what they're arguing is that when Roe v. Wade was decided, we science wasn't as advanced as it is about this, and so the the point that the pro-life folks are trying to make is, well, wait a second, we do have some science now that's more uh, uh, accurate and probably paints a slightly different picture for a lot of folks that aren't theological. It's based on science. Mm-hmm. I think this puts both parties in an interesting place, right? Because the Democrats like to talk about how they're the party of science and we're going to we're going to make determinations on snail darters based on, you know, science alone, but we're not going to do it here. And I think it creates an interesting debate about the use of science in politics and constitutional law. All right, we'll watch how it unfolds. There's no reason to think that this will not get a, 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 a yes vote in the House, an approval, and beyond to the governor's desk for signature. Uh, a yes vote, but again, I would expect a lot of House Republicans to walk. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to have to take responsibility for this vote. All right, let's do this. Let's get our second break of the show out of the way. Uh, Jim Galloway, there's a lot of legislative things still happening, but you know what? We're gonna, we got a show again tomorrow. So right now I'm telling you, you want to know more about Hartsfield Airport? That's become interesting again. Uh, Transportation Bill 511. We're going to put all that on tomorrow's show. And when we come back, we're going to pick up the item that uh, Jim Galloway started to talk about. And that is Karen Handels running for Congress again. This is Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, how extremists use social media to amplify their message, recruit new followers, and incite violence. We talk with J.M. Berger, who has studied and written about ISIS and white nationalist movements in the U.S. and abroad. He's the author of the book, Extremism. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org. Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. 
We're back on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Amy Steigerwald is with us. Heath Garrett, Buddy Darden, and Jim Galloway. Um, Buddy, let me let you take the first crack at this because that's your territory. You know, that 6th District Congressional, you you covered a lot of that ground, or some of that ground, not a lot of that ground back when you were the 7th District Congressman up there, right? That's right. I had all of East Cobb. In fact, I had all of Cobb County yeah. in yeah. Uh, my original district, and I found out out in East Cobb, that those are moderate Republicans. Those are what we call uh, Chamber of Commerce Republicans and economic Republicans. They are not carry-your-gun-to-church Republicans, and they are not uh, right-wing, no abortion under any circumstances Republicans. They are independent-leaning, and they are, I would call them certainly right-of-center and Republican by default. All right, so that said, Jim Galloway, they might be— they might be, but to win a Republican primary up there, you know, candidates seem to feel you better move to the right. Uh, Karen Handel released a video this morning announcing her candidacy. It started with a lot of interesting imagery. It was a 90-second uh, video, and, 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 and let's, let's, can we go ahead and play a clip? Because, But it's it, it, the thing is, it started negative, and only toward the end of it did it say... Yeah. That it's that it did it did it develop some positive themes? Yeah, uh, we will. But Heath, what are some of the images we see at the beginning to set up what what Handel says as we move into the, her part of the commercial uh, to the spot? I think what you see right at the beginning, right, is what we all see that the Republican base, what's very popular, is being opposed to Nancy Pelosi, opposed to AOC, opposed to many of the national Kamala Harris. And others uh, with clips of of them in our Rashida Talab's uh, rally. We're going to impeach the MF. Uh, lots of cuss words. Right. Ang- you know, democratic anger. So those images just play out with natural sound, and then Karen Handel speaks. Imagine if we had leaders in Washington who worked for us. Leaders more interested in doing their jobs than being a celebrity. Imagine if those leaders actually lived in our communities and understood us, understood our challenges, our struggles, our successes. Leaders less focused on partisan fighting and gridlock and more focused on the issues that we care about, like keeping our economy going, making sure that those who keep us safe have the resources they need, supporting those struggling with addiction and continuing the fight to eliminate human trafficking. I'm Karen Handel. I'm running for Congress because a leader who works for you every day shouldn't be something that's left to our imagination. Join me today. Together, we will take back the six. That could be a Buddy Darden commercial or a Johnny Isaacson commercial. I okay. I'm not quite sure what the message there is. To be honest with you, uh, well, uh, it, it, actually, what was interesting, Bill, was the email that that video was clip was contained in. There was a a one word message uh, from Karen Handel, and that was, "I'm running." Yeah, <laughs> and that's that, that's the message of that video. Well, that's, right exa- well, that's right, and maybe that's enough. Um, we should point out, of course, that Heath Garrett is uh, consulting in that uh, primary race for Brandon Beach, who is the first to declare his candidacy. So you can weigh in on everything but criticizing Karen Handel. But, uh, but, but if, 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 if I could, if, if, fair enough. Let, let me, Bill, on this, let me, let, me, let me talk about timing here. And, and, and uh, Heath and I have not spoken about this at all. All right, but I think there's some very interesting things. You know, you you would normally expect a candidate to jump into 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 a, into a race like this after March 30th, after the after uh, uh, the financial the reporting campaign period. reporting right. period. Okay, all right, but 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 consider number one, the Mueller Mueller report was out this weekend. Okay, that kind of may take down the toxicity of 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 a Trump reelect slightly. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to eliminate it. It it might it might assuage it just a little bit. This comes a week after a MARTA vote in Gwinnett County, okay, and and that that uh, that that could affect Brandon Beach's bid for the six in North Fulton because it kind of removes transit as a topic Which of conversation. Which he was a, a champion of, of right. course. Okay, and then the other thing is 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 flat out this is a race for money yeah. uh, between uh, Handel and Beach, 
And uh, Mr. Beach just happens to have a, a fundraiser on Wednesday on Paces Valley Road. And you've got Steve Selig, uh, Selig. Selig uh, Charles Tarbutton, uh, Virgil Williams, some fairly big, big names. Heavy hitters. Yeah. Heavy hitters. Wow. And Heath Garrett, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 which I and, and, and wow. let me say, I did not also did not get this from Mr. Garrett here, but it 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 kind of speaks to why she's doing this now. I think, um, buddy, I you know it's one of the most interesting things about this is that Karen Handel, the former incumbent who had the spotlight from the very beginning of the race against all of the Democrats who opposed her is now just one of another candidate's running for hoping to win the nomination. Very different uh, playing field for her this time around. Very different playing field, and she didn't mention Donald Trump at all. And it's going to be interesting to see who the Trump candidate is going to be in that race. And I say, say, I don't, I, I'm not asking that rhetorically. I don't know, but I'm not sure that even Trump will be a factor. I'll leave that up to him. To, to uh, Heath and all the professionals, but that's 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 going to be a very sensitive kind of primary to run, and I'm going to be watching with a lot of interest. I think it is interesting that she decided to start off talking about the Pelosi, uh, you know, the sort of running against Nancy Pelosi, in part because it didn't work particularly well the last time yeah. around. And so that does seem a bit like an interesting choice, especially because that's not really a person that most people know. I'm not sure that that's going to appeal more broadly because, I mean, I think what is difficult about this is that she, again, is starting off in a different position because she's not the incumbent again. And so this time she first has to win a primary. So really Really, that the first part of the ad was targeted towards the base and towards the primary. The second part of the ad was really more about the general election. And I think part of what she's going to have to figure out is where is she going and how is she going to really sort of put those two? Because there's a bit of a disconnect between the first half and the second half. To, to that end, to that end, uh, it's Bill, it's worth noting that uh, uh, last uh, Friday, Brandon Beach was among those who voted for HB 481. The, uh, the fetal heartbeat, the, the, bill. F- heart, the heartbeat bill, because he knew he was going to be in a in a uh, in a primary with Karen Handel. So that <laughs> speaks. That's contrary to what we heard Buddy describe. Of course, you were talking about the the Cobb County portion of the district being more moderate Republicans. Well, but, well actually, that would, that would apply to uh, the, oh, the Fulton County part too, and maybe not the Cobb as much. But uh, yes, I, be- I believe. And, but you're talking about primary Republicans here and getting well, the primary. Even the, even the primary. So I, I had the good fortune of serving as Johnny Isaacson's chief of staff when he was the congressman to the 6th District. It's changed a little bit, but still today, then and today, it is the most highly educated, most affluent by income, and the most wired congressional district in the South, it's also the most wired congressional district in the country. There's actually more fiber in this congressional district than Silicon Valley, believe that or not. So it's highly educated, which means the primary is slightly more moderate than what most Republicans think of in a Republican primary if everybody comes to vote. And then definitely the general election. That's why I say for either Brandon Beach or Karen Handel, uh, this seat can be won again as a Republican. But it's definitely, Buddy pointed it out, is a very fine line to walk as a Republican, to win the primary and win the general election in a presidential cycle. Um, and it's going to be a fascinating battle to watch. Bill, in 1983, when I first ran, and I realized that was centuries ago, but at the same time, I had just voted for ERA in the state legislature, and uh, that was to my advantage in many areas of East Cobb okay. back then. Now you've got me really confused. Jim, please help me understand this. I'm hearing... Both, I'm hearing everybody saying the district is made up of people who are a little bit more moderate in their thinking. But I also just heard you say that Brandon Beach voted for the heartbeat bill because he needs to win a Republican primary. That's certainly not a moderate position to take. Okay, yeah, okay, but you, but you have to. You're anticipating where is Karen Handel likely to go into this in in, in this race? And if you if you've looked at her past campaigns, she goes very hard on the abortion issue. Uh, as you know, it's it's. It uh, and uh, and I don't think she could walk away from that, so she's likely to double down on that. Okay. So Beach would have to so match Beach her in a primary. All right, and, fine, I get it. 
Um, and primary voters are generally more to the extremes of both whatever party it is. Those who turn out are going to be those who most heavily identify with the party and to more of its extremes. Okay, well, you know, I'm just a host here. I leave it up to all of you to help me understand these things. Um, we're really short on time. Um but I want to take up one quick thing and, and then promote something we're going to show, do on tomorrow's show. Um, the the mayor, Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta, Jim, uh, announced at the end of last week she's reopening the Atlanta child murders case. And I, I'm trying to understand the motivation behind that. It's going to expose the city of Atlanta to a lot of, uh, well, there's already publicity. There's a couple documentaries about the child murders, which were a horrendous chapter in in uh, in the history of North Georgia uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Do you have any sense of why this has been? Look, look, I would compare it. I would compare it to the debate that we had over the last couple of years over uh, rape test kits. Really? Uh, because because what you had, look, you had Wayne Williams convicted on on two uh, two counts. And then the law enforcement community simply attributed the other 30 or so uh, homicides to him. Well, I think and, they actually uh, thought there were probably, what, a dozen, several dozen, there was some additional evidence, fiber evidence that, that attached. Yes, yeah, but yeah. you've got, fi- you had fiber evidence then, and it was revolutionary at the time. Yeah. Since then, we've got DNA evidence. And, and I think what, 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 what Mayor Bottoms is talking about is culling through that evidence and let's see where it takes us. And, it, and, and if it answers some unanswered questions, well, that, that's, that's a good thing. Everybody think that's a, a good thing to be doing right now? No, I don't. I'm a little leery of it. I'm a former district attorney, of course, and I've got to admit that these convictions need to be over at some point. And we're looking at something almost 40 years ago. Lewis Slayton, the district attorney, is dead. Jack Mallard from his office uh, who prosecuted the case is dead. Most of the players who might know other information that's available are all gone now. And so this is very risky business, I think, getting into this. And and I've got some uh, grave reservations about it. We're virtually out of time. You want a quick comment? I just think it's very risky uh, from, from a perception standpoint and from a criminal justice Amy? standpoint. Problem is being the academic. I think that there's great utility in understanding how advances of underst- of yeah. utilizing them to be able to test evidence and also the question that we've had concerns, right, in various times about what evidence is being used to convict people, especially when it hasn't uh, really tested things like DNA. Okay. you. That's it. We are completely out of time uh, for this show. Um, I want to tell you, yesterday, Robert Jimison and I were at Ebenezer Baptist Church to see uh, Kamala Harris, who, of course, is a Democratic candidate for president. She came and spoke there briefly, then went on and did a rally later in the afternoon. Uh, We're going to talk about that a little bit tomorrow. And Robert uh, filed a terrific story that we'll play for you tomorrow on uh, the role that Ebenezer Baptist Church and other churches like it play in politics uh, today. And so look forward to that when we continue with Political Rewind tomorrow at 2 o'clock. In the meantime, thanks all of you for being with us today. See you tomorrow at 2. 